Well, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things. This is a podcast not about shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about the who, what, where, why, and how of shellfish aquaculture, including the many different legal challenges that can arise. We're the National Cigarette Law Center, and we invite you to sit down and get ready for a wave of knowledge. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I'm the director of the National Sea Grant Law Center. Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm a senior research counsel at the National Sea Grant Law Center. And I'm Amanda. I'm the Ocean and Coastal Law Fellow at the National Sea Grant Law Center. You're listening to Law on the Half Shell. Today, we're doing things a little differently. As we were putting the series together, we discovered a lot of interesting facts about shellfish. Unfortunately, some of our favorite facts didn't make it into the episodes. So here, in this bonus episode, we wanted to take you behind the scenes of podcast production and share some of our favorite discoveries. First of all, some of you may be wondering about the significance of the music clip we used in our episode intros. If it sounds familiar, that's because it was used in the famous Disney film Alice in Wonderland in 1951. However, the source material for the song has actually been around since 1871 when Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, wrote a poem entitled The Walrus and the Carpenter to include in his book Through the Looking Glass. In the poem, the walrus and the carpenter come upon a bed of oysters while walking upon the beach one night. Looking to have a tasty meal, the walrus and the carpenter trick the oysters into following them, only to turn on them and eat everyone. Oh man, that is awful. I agree. Perhaps it's best not to consort with strange walruses and carpenters if you shellfishly want to stay alive. I'm sorry for that one. <laughs> Another fun fact is that the Beatles actually reference Carol's poem in their hit song, I'm a Walrus. John Lennon once expressed how dismayed he was at learning that the walrus was a villain in the poem as Carol tricks his readers and the poor oysters into thinking that the walrus is kind and well-intentioned. One other cool thing that I've kind of found in my research, too, is is uh, these things called hemocytes in oysters. So, are you familiar with what I don't know are? what a hemocyte is. <laughs> so, so, if you think about it, it's uh, the way I like to think about it is they're kind of like our white blood cells, like our a human's white blood cells, but on steroids, right? So, basically... <laughs> They, they do all these other functions. So our, our white blood cells are part of our immune system. They engulf pathogens and degrade them and protect us, right? Oysters have these similar things called hemocytes where they'll you know, engulf pathogens, they'll degrade them and excrete them and protect the oyster. But that's not all they do. They do all these other functions. They actually help with digestion. So Oysters can ingest something, these hemocytes will engulf them and actually transfer them to their digestive tract to digest them. And this way they can selectively pick particles out of the water that they can, they can eat, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and they also help with shell deposition, right? So they'll help transport um, calcium, which is one of the main components of their cells or, or their shells, and actually help them form their shells, repair their shells, and stuff like that. So they're kind of like the main line of defense plus the jack-of-all-trades for oysters. So it's, it's kind of, hemocytes are pretty cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So in your work, have you encountered, so in your actual research project, any particular challenges since coming on board um, with the University of Mississippi? Yes. So lots of challenges. Um, 
it's estuaries, which are which are the environments that um, oysters live in, are very complex environments, right? So there's a lot of things that can go into these estuaries, like contamination. There's a lot of freshwater influx, which we've had a lot of at the Mississippi coast um, in the past months. Um, so they're they're constantly being berated by all of these different stressors and and trying to mimic that in a laboratory setting is almost impossible, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one of the main challenges when studying oysters is how are you going to mimic these environmental conditions in a lab, right? So that's that's one of the main the main kind of things that we've come across and one of the the what are the struggles of the research, I guess you could say. Did you kill all your oysters? Uh, we killed a lot of oysters, we did, <laughs> we did. It's funny because we're trying to save them, but we're, we've killed a lot of them in the process. Um, another one is working in the field. So just working in the field takes, you know, I came from a background of forensic chemistry in my undergraduate degree, right? So then in there, I meet my advisor and she's like, do this research on oysters. So I had to start from zero, right? So I had to learn how to function and run a study in the field in a way where you can get data that's going to mean something, hopefully, right? So that, that took a lot more effort than I originally thought. We had these big sensors that we threw out, um, these landers that we put into the sound, and we put oysters in them, and we ended up losing a lot of them, and then we had to, or like, some of them were, like, crushed up by propellers and stuff like that, and we went back, and we couldn't find some of them, and it's just we lost a lot of money, and then we had to re-reevaluate, go out again, and just try, keep trying. And there's been a lot of uh, setbacks, but it's it's been really fun trying to figure it out. Fun fact: <laughs> <laughs> Prince Edward Island is not just the home of Anne of Green Gables. It is uh, located on the east coast of Canada near Nova Scotia, if you don't know. And the area's ocean waters and tidal habitat are actually ideal for growing mussels. So PEI is the largest producer of mussels in North America. Who knew? <laughs> so anybody who goes to Prince Edward Island for Anna Green Gables should also try out their mussels. <laughs> Be a fun vacation. <laughs> Do you guys know what moules frites is? No. I speak bad French. So it's mussels with French fries. Um, and it's actually the national dish of Belgium. So it was originally created by combining mussels, which was a cheap food stuff, on the coast of Belgium, and then with fried potatoes, which were eaten in winter when other sources of food were together. So that's how the two were matched together. Um, and they're so popular that a Belgian pop star has actually made a song called Moulet's Frites, in which he sings about his favorite delicious dish of Belgium. True love for carbs. <laughs> <laughs> I love French fries, but I'm not so sure about eating it with muscles. But actually, once I was in Washington, D.C. on Belgian, National Belgian Holiday or Independence Day, and I went to a Belgian restaurant and it was delicious because oh. they cooked the French fries in duck fat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. That sounds great. Cynical. Yes. Maybe. Have you heard that there's Two different types of clam chowder, New England and Manhattan. If we took a vote. I have not heard that. You have yeah. not heard that? No. I feel like a lot of people don't know what Manhattan, Manhattan. Clam, clam chowder is. And so a couple of us were Northeasterners. And so we know that New York and Boston have this huge rivalry. The Red Sox and Yankees hate each other. The cities don't have a lot of love lost. 
And as someone who loves the Yankees, I'm sad to say that Manhattan's probably the ugly stepsister to New England clam chowder. <laughs> In fact, the cookbook writer James Beard described the clam chowder, and I'm quoting him, as rather horrendous soup called Manhattan clam chowder resembles a vegetable soup that accidentally had some clams dumped into it. And some people thought it was so bad that in 1939, a state assemblyman from Maine introduced a bill to make it a statutory and culinary offense to put tomatoes into chowder. So for those of you who've never had it, it's basically, you know, a vegetable soup with potatoes and onions and obviously clams, but they use a tomato broth instead of the traditional New England version that's creamy and delicious and hearty. And so that's why most of you have probably never had it because I feel like it's really not caught on in other parts of the country. <laughs> yes. So your, your clam chowder should be creamy, not and, tomatoey. Yeah. And the New England clam chowder, um, so Manhattan dates back probably to the mid 1800s. They thought it was because so many Italians had come into New York, and so there was this involving love of tomatoes, and that's why they added the tomatoes. But the New England version, um, they think, was probably brought about by French and Nova Scotian settlers back into the 1700s. And if you go to Boston, the nation's oldest operating restaurant is there, and they've been serving New England clam chowder since 1836. That's the Union Oyster House in Boston. And you should all go. I've had it. It's delicious. Sounds yummy. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. It is made possible in part by funding from the NOAA National Sea Grant College Program. The statements, findings, conclusions, and recommendations are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of NOAA or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Editing and production assistance was provided by Kerrigan Harrod, a senior journalism student at the University of Mississippi. Thanks for listening.